Hello, everyone, and welcome to Discussions and Dragons, the podcast where my brother and I take an in-depth look at the world of 5e and all things Dungeons and Dragons. Opening and closing music credit to Will Savino at patreon.com slash musicd20. I'm Jaren. And I'm Britton. And this week, we are continuing our serialized look at the new sourcebook for 5th edition titled Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Tasha's has introduced new and optional rules for character creation, as well as a ton of new subclasses for players to choose from. This week, we are focusing on the Warlock and Wizard classes and everything that Tasha has to offer them. So, Britton, why don't you get us kicked off with the Warlock class? Yeah, so I was really, really excited to see what Tasha had to offer for Warlocks. Uh, A more recent character of mine was a Warlock, so I was really excited to see what um, new innovations and things were offered. So, taking a look, the first thing that we have is an additional Warlock spell list. So all of the spells that are on this list uh, we've already talked about and seen in previous episodes, all but one. So the only spell so far that's unique to this class that is new that we haven't seen before is a summon spell, and that is Summon Shadow Spawn. So it's, it's very similar to all the other summon spells. You know, there's concentration uh, requiring a very specific material component, uh, which in this case uh, is tiers inside of a gem worth at least 300 GP, and it can be cast at higher level for a stronger summon. So essentially, this, uh, much like it sounds, you call forth a shadowy creature with the ability to cause a mass frighten and can also reduce speed of other creatures and can make multi-attacks and things like that. So in total, Warlocks are getting 15 new spells from Tasha's and uh, those ones are, the cantrips that you're getting are Booming Blade, Green Flame Blade, Lightning Lure, Mind Sliver, and Sword Burst. Uh, Your third level spell is Intellect Fortress, Spirit Shroud, Summon Fey, Summon Shadow Spawn, Summon Undead. Fourth level is Summon Aberration. All of the fifth ones we've seen, and sixth level is Summon Fiend and Tasha's Otherworldly Guise. Seventh level is Dream of the Blue Veil. And ninth level is Blade of Disaster, which if you guys listened to the previous episode, Blade of Disaster is that bonkers, nutty sorcerer spell uh, where you can cause, what is it, like 10d12 damage? I think like it's that. 12d12 at maximum. Yeah, it's crazy. Good lord. But uh, yeah, so those are all of the spells that you get. Um, The only new one that we haven't seen so far is the Summon Shadow Spawn. So the next thing that Warlocks are getting as an option is a new Pact Boon. So uh, if you are unfamiliar with Warlocks, at third level, your patron bestows a boon or a gift upon the Warlock that assists them either in battle or uh, out of combat in various ways. Uh, This one is called the Talisman. So your patron bestows upon the wearer a talisman to aid them in the time of need. When the wearer of the talisman fails an ability check, they may add a d4 to the roll, potentially causing a success. And this benefit can be used a number of times equal to the warlock's proficiency bonus, and you regain all expended uses after a long rest. If you lose the talisman, you may perform a one-hour ritual to receive another one. So this feature to me is... uh, I think it's really interesting. It is one of the four Pact Boons that you may choose at level three, um, the other being Pact of the Tome, the Chain, or the Blade. So considering the wording being that the wearer benefits from the Talisman and not just the Warlock is pretty cool. It differentiates the power 
not lying in the Warlock, but lying in the boon itself. Having a D4 on an ability check, uh, it kind of reminds me of the Guidance cantrip uh, without needing any sort of concentration or forethought. It's just when you fail, you can roll that. And it's not, it doesn't take a reaction, so if you're in battle and you uh, need to, do, if you're trying to grapple and you're doing like a strength check or something like that, contested strength checks, you can add a D4 if you, if you are about to fail. So I think that the only heavy limiting factor is that this at third level, your proficiency bonus is only plus two. So you do only get two uses of this per long rest. Um, but with most packed boons, they seem a little underpowered at first. But with some Eldritch invocations that are designed around them, they can be quite formidable. Um, and spoiler alert, we will see Eldritch invocations that go along with the Talisman. So at fourth level, much like we've seen with every other class that is a caster, this um, leveling ability where you can swap out cantrips and do things like that, this one is called Eldritch Versatility. Um, and along with being able to replace cantrips that you have previously chosen, anytime that you reach a level to receive an ability score increase, you may also replace your Pact Boon feature with another from the list. And you may also replace one of your Mystic Arcanum spells with another of the same level, as long as you are level 12 at the time of your ability score increase. So um, obviously we're not going to go too much into this feature because at this point we've seen it over and over and over in the book so far. But there are two things that I think are very important to note, and that is that being able to change a Pact Boon is incredibly useful, especially if your playstyle doesn't end up matching what's happening with your character. Or perhaps the boon isn't totally what you envisioned. Um, and if you're worried that your Eldritch Invocation that you took to go along with your boon was a waste, you can also swap out an Invocation with another whenever you gain a level in the class. So you can swap out your boons if you feel like you've made a mistake. And swap out the Eldritch Invocations that went with them. And uh, the second thing is that same as it stated before about playstyle or a feature not working the way you envisioned, being able to swap out your 6th through ninth level spells is very nice. So for people who are unfamiliar with Warlocks, they do not get uh, spells that are 6th level through ninth. Um, you know, kind of like a sorcerer or a wizard might where you can just choose from your list. You get to choose one that you can cast per long rest for 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth level. And those are called Mystic Arcanums. Those are gifts from your patron. So being able to swap those out is also incredibly useful, especially if you, you only get to cast them once per day. As a warlock, that's really tough, especially finding out, all right, well, I took this spell and it's actually really useless and for useless for me in the way that I play. So I want to be able to swap it out. And with this Eldritch versatility, you can do that now. So moving on, uh, there are new Eldritch Invocation options. Uh, Eldritch Invocations are the bread and butter of what makes Warlocks Warlocks. As you level up, you learn more Eldritch Invocations that either empower the spells that you already have, give you free spells that you can either cast at will or once per day without using a spell slot, um, or they will buff your Pact Boon, as mentioned before. So these are options for the invocations that Warlocks can take, in addition to ones that are listed in the Player's Handbook and Xanathar's. There are quite a bit of these, so much like the metamagic options in the last episode, I'm just going to explain each one and give far less of an in-depth opinion, because we do have a lot to cover. So... The first one listed in the book is called Bond of the Talisman. The prerequisite for this is that you have to be a 12th level Pact of the Talisman Warlock. 
So you do have to have the talisman packed boon and be a level 12 warlock. So when somebody is wearing your talisman, you can use your action to teleport to the nearest unoccupied space next to them. The wearer can also do the same thing, teleporting to you, as long as both of you are on the same plane of existence. And this can be a d done a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. Uh, Eldritch Mind, you have advantage on con saves to, the, to maintain concentration on a spell. So basically this is like Warcaster without the ability to cast a spell as an opportunity attack. Far Scribe, this is a prerequisite of you need to be 5th level Warlock with the Pact Boon of the Tome. With your permission, a creature may write its name on a page in your Book of Shadows. If they do, you can cast the Sending spell targeting that creature without using a spell slot or needing material components. The target hears the message in their head and they may reply. Their reply is written in the book and stays there for one minute. And you may have a number of creatures' names in the book on that page up to your proficiency bonus. And you can also erase a name by magically uh, touching it, touching the name in the book. The next one is the Gift of the Protector. This is a prerequisite ninth level warlock, same uh, Pact of the Tome. With your permission, uh, creatures may write their name on a page in your Book of Shadows, and whenever any creature whose name is in the book, this way, is reduced to zero hit points without outright dying, is instead reduced to one hit point instead. Now, once this magic is triggered, no other creature can benefit from it until your next long rest. And similar with the most previous one, you can also erase a name by touching the name in the book. The next is the investment of the chain master. Now, this is just a prerequisite of just being uh, a Pact of the Chain warlock. Uh, when you cast your familiar, you may imbue your familiar with the following benefits. It gains a flying or swimming speed of 40 feet, and that is your choice. They can take the attack action using your bonus action to command them to do so. Their weapon attacks are considered magical in, uh, in regards to getting around resistances to certain damages. Um, if the familiar forces a creature to make a saving throw, it uses your spell save DC. And when your familiar takes damage, you may use your reaction to give it resistance to that damage. The next one is the protection of the talisman. This is a prerequisite seventh level warlock of the talisman feature, or invocation rather. When the wearer fails a saving throw, they may add a d4 to the row to the roll, potentially causing a success. This benefit can be used a number of times, equal to your proficiency bonus, and you regain all expended uses after a long rest. So much like the initial Pact of the Talisman benefit, but instead of a check, it is also a saving throw now with the d4. The next one for the Talisman is the Rebuke of the Talisman. And this prereq is just to have the Pact of the Talisman. There is no level requirement. Um, when the wearer of your talisman is hit by an attack within 30 feet of you and you can see it, you may use your reaction to cause the attacker to take physical damage equal to your proficiency bonus and be pushed 10 feet from the wearer. Next is Undying Servitude. You can cast Animate Dead once per long rest without using a spell slot. So that does it for all of the new Eldritch Invocations. Um, personally, I'm really excited about the new Pact of the Tome features. Um, I love the idea of always having the sending spell and basically speaking to them through a book and also being able to save one person per day from potentially just dying. Um, and it is important to note that it is when they're reduced to zero hit points without dying outright. 
But, you know, having that insurance for your entire party potentially can be really, really awesome. I would be using that um, Animate Dead often, all the time, <laughs> once I hit 5th level Warlock with the Undying Servitude. Right? Yeah, some of those spells that you can cast once per day without using a spell slot can be really, really strong. Especially since Warlocks don't have the opportunity to cast a ton of spells per day. Alright, so that does it for all of the new optional class features for the Warlock. Now, Tasha's offers us two different otherworldly patrons that you will uh, take at first level. Um, they are the Fathomless and the Genie. So, the first up is the Fathomless. The magic of the Fathomless comes from the icy depths below the waves. This could be a water elemental, a sunken demigod, or even a mighty kraken bestowing a piece of its awesome power upon you. These warlocks have forged a pact with a being from below. So first and foremost, when you do take this pact with this otherworldly patron, you get an expanded spell list. Now, these additional spells are spells that you know and are always prepared, um, and they do not count against the number of spells known. And I would like to note that these spells are gained when your spell level equals what is in the book and not your warlock level. So as warlocks level up, their spells cast at the highest maximum level that they are able to cast at automatically. So as your spells level up, this is when you get these additional spells. So when you can cast at first level, you get Create or Destroy Water and Thunder Wave. When you can cast at second level, you get Gust of Wind and Silence. Third level is Lightning Bolt and Sleet Storm. Fourth level is Control Water and Summon Elemental, but you only get the Water Elemental option. Fifth level is Bigby's Hand, and it appears as a Writhing Tentacle, and Cone of Cold. So these are all pretty on-theme spells for the Fathomless, um, and I think that two of these spells being modified so that it reflects their patron is thematically really cool. Um, the fact that your patron's magic is so potent that some of their spells, some of the warlock spells that are being cast reflect the patron. Um, Bigby's hand appearing as a giant spectral tentacle is pretty scary, if I'm going to be honest. Yeah, that is very creepy. Yeah, I I love it. I think it's, I, we'll see more tentacle stuff here in the next little bit, but I just... I love the idea of, you know, making a pact with like some sort of octopoid and having your spells being cast as tentacles. But speaking of tentacles, the next feature that you get at first level is called Tentacles of the Deep. So as a bonus action, you create a spectral tentacle that is 10 feet long with a 60 foot within a 60 foot range of you. It lasts for one minute or until you use this feature again. As a part of the bonus action, you may make a melee spell attack with the tentacle within 10 feet of it, causing the target 1d8 cold damage. Now, this increases to 2d8 at 10th level. And the target's speed is reduced by 10 feet on a hit. And as a bonus action on any subsequent turns, you may move the tentacle up to 30 feet and repeat the attack. And you may summon this tentacle uh, this way a number of times equal to the profic your proficiency bonus per long rest. So, as the resident cleric player, I would like to think that I am, this to me screams spiritual weapon. 
Now, the only difference that I can see is that Spiritual Weapon can only move 20 feet per round, and its damage is based off of the spell level used. But having said that, I'm, I'm really, really happy that Warlocks are getting more features like this um, that are like replacing a spell. This, this Tentacle of the Deeps kind of replaces the Cleric spell Spiritual Weapon, and I think that's really cool. It kind of reflects it like through the lens of a Warlock. And having an already severely limited number of spell slots, I think that giving Warlocks something like this is really cool, since you are basically giving them, you know, at first level, only two times per long rest, but at max level, that's six times to cast, quote-unquote, cast this feature. And I think that's really cool. Um, it makes me think about how... Um, a spiritual weapon is emulating a weapon that is connotated with their deity, but this tentacle of the deeps is sort of an extension of their patron's limb. So it's kind of like their arm or whatever is assisting them in battle. Like it's coming through from the, the nether into this realm to do your bidding. Yeah, very much so. Very, very formidable. So the second thing that you get at first level is called Gift of the Sea. So you gain a swimming speed of 40 feet, and you can breathe underwater. Um, not too much to say about this feature, other than it, you know, it fits within the theme of oceanic. It, it would make sense that some sort of ocean-based deity would bestow their charges with the gift of amphibiousness. I think, obviously, the, the real power punch feature that you get is the, the Tentacle of the Deep, but I think that Gift of the Sea, it just makes sense that at first level, when you do gain this, uh, otherworldly patron, they're gifting you the the gift of amphibiousness. So moving on to sixth level, it is the feature that you get is called Oceanic Soul. So you gain resistance to cold damage, and while you are fully submerged, any creature that is also fully submerged can understand your speech, and you can understand theirs. So in regards to the resistance to cold damage, it's not something that I wouldn't expect. Initially, I think it is a little underwhelming because, you know, the Triton race already gets the underwater breathing, swimming speed, and the resistance to cold damage just by existing. So waiting six levels to gain resistance to a damage type isn't that great, um, but I think that the power of this feature lies in the, the second part of the feature. Being able to speak underwater is really, really nice, especially, you know, depending on the DM, verbal component spells can't be cast underwater because you're you're you get muddled by you know the bubbles coming out of your mouth and you're not able to conjure up those spells and underwater it's same with underwater communication it can be very frustrating to have a party be underwater and you can't speak to them so you know getting around that hurdle of speaking underwater is is very very helpful and i would like to note that this is one of only two subclasses for Warlock that offer a feature at 6th level that isn't something that they can use once per long rest. This is something that is constant for them, and it requires no sort of concentration or casting or um, anything. This is just something that they always get, and I think it's really cool that this is only one of two uh, subclasses that get this type of feature. Yeah, and there's not a whole lot of uh, situations I can I can see in a campaign where your party is going to be underwater and, and need that requirement of being able to understand language, um, that where they ordinarily wouldn't just be given that ability to be able to communicate. Um, but there there certainly are 
areas, instances in the world D&D. &D. Um, there are a lot of places in the Underdark, for example. Um, there are potentially, you know, no spoilers here. We are uh, running Storm King's Thunder on a weekly basis. There's maybe, you know, they are on the coast of Faerun, uh, a situation where they might be underwater at some point. I don't know. Yeah, and I, I think it is also important to note that spells like... Um... I think it's just called like breathe underwater or breathe water. I, I, I can't really remember the name of the spell right now off the top of my head, but there are spells that, that just allow you to select a number of creatures and they can breathe underwater, which is great, but it is breathing water. It is not communicating underwater. So yes, you can breathe underwater, but underwater communication is still nixed. So this feature being able to make your party understand you is really nice. All right, so moving right along, the next sixth level feature that you get is called Guardian Coil. Now, this actually compounds off of the Tentacle of the Deeps feature that we saw at first level. So your Tentacle of the Deeps can now defend you and others in combat, uh, putting itself between them and harm. So when you or a creature that you can see uh, takes damage while within 10 feet of the Tentacle, you can actually use your reaction and choose one of those creatures that had caused damage and reduce the damage from that creature by 1d8. Uh, and much like the damage increase at Tentacle of the Deeps at 10th level to 2d8, you can reduce the damage to 2d8 at 10th level. So I like that, you know, it's compounding off of a feature that we saw in the beginning. That's kind of the trend of what Tasha's is doing. Um, and not just the spiritual weapon, quote-unquote, being a damage dealer, I like that it also can be an element of protection as well. So you're calling forth this tentacle that can assist you in battle, but can also help protect you. Yeah, it kind of gives um, some protection, some damage reduction, a little bit of safety to a class that ordinarily might not have easy access to that sort of thing. Yeah, there's not a lot of um, protection or damage mitigation in their kits, or even in their spell list, there's not a whole lot of damage mitigation. So I like that this is uh, kind of new unique to this class. So moving right along with the tentacle theme that uh, has been built up, uh, at 10th level you gain a feature called Grasping Tentacles. So you learn Evard's Black Tentacles spell, and it doesn't count against the number of spells that you know. You can cast it once per long rest without using a spell slot, and additionally, when you cast this spell, you gain a number of temporary HP equal to your Warlock level, and damage cannot break concentration on this spell. So what I like about this feature is that it's something that is interesting to do during your turn that isn't Eldritch Blast. Um, this combined with the Tentacle of the Deep feature is an incredibly strong combination. You know, much like clerics casting spiritual weapon that doesn't, you know, have the tag of concentration, they can have their spiritual weapon up and they can also cast a concentration spell. Same with this warlock here. Now, you can cast your Tentacle of the Deep and also have Avard's Black Tentacles up and neither of them will be in contrast with each other when it comes to concentration. Um, you can really have a strong control of the battlefield, setting up zoning areas where enemies will not tread while funneling them into an area where your tentacle is just waiting for them. 
And if you are unfamiliar with Evard's Black Tentacles, this spell can be located in the player's handbook. Um, basically, it is a spell that makes an area difficult terrain. It has the ability to restrain creatures within that terrain, and it can also do damage. So, and it also has the ability, uh, the additional ability of not being able to be broken by the way of taking damage. That is so, so strong because, you know, when somebody's concentrating on a spell, what do you want to do? Break their concentration. So being able to completely get around the fact that your concentration can be broken makes this very formidable. Yeah, that is quite strong. And I'm going to be honest, I had to go look that up really quick because either I don't play Warlock enough or that's just not a super popular spell. I literally have never seen it cast before, so I had to go and just look that up really quick and, and verify for myself the effects. Um, and I think you're right, being able to cast that and not risk losing concentration on it makes this 10th level feature quite strong. Oh yeah, very much so. So rounding it off with the last feature that you get at 14th level. It is called Fathomless Plunge. As an action, you can teleport yourself and up to five willing creatures you can see within 30 feet of you up to one mile away to a body of water that you have seen before. You all appear within 30 feet of the body of water or in the body of water within 30 feet of each other. And you may do this once per long or short rest. So this is kind of an interesting feature. Um, being able to do this as an action suggests that this feature would be used to escape combat or any type of immediate danger. So if, if we look at, look at this spell as a combat escape spell, I think that it is pretty useful. You know, you don't have to worry about uh, gathering people together. You just need to be within 30 feet of the people that you want to transport. But I think that where it falls short for me is the out-of-combat utility. This spell kind of mimics the transport via plant spell and its uh, group transport ability. Uh, and the fact that you can only transport yourself to a specific location that you've seen or touched before kind of mimics that as well. Where for me it falls short is the fact that you can only transport up to a mile away. Now, if we're thinking about this and, you know, metagaming, thinking about a person walking, uh, you know, an average person takes about 15 to 20 minutes to just leisurely walk a mile and about half that to run it. So, I mean, realistically, you don't really get that far away. Plus, in comparison to transport via plants, I would wager to say that unless you are in the water world setting for 5e, you're going to come across a lot more trees than bodies of water. So this spell will only take you to a very specific location that you could easily walk to in about 20 minutes. So I can definitely see this feature's merit as a combat escape or a danger escape spell, um, but out of combat, it's just really not impressive to me as an end cap feature for this subclass. Yeah, I can certainly see that being... A real uh, annoying spell for the DM. You know, if your party's in this big final combat, uh, someone's about to fall, and then, and then the warlock just whisks them all away off to safety. Yeah, so it can be a really nice um, danger escape, but I just I can't help but think of transport via plants being able to go to any tree on the plane of existence that you're on versus 
oh, I can get a mile away to a body of water. And that's a very, very, very specific thing. So it's like, okay, well, I guess then if we're going to have this fight, we need to make sure that we're within a mile of a body of water that I've seen before. Yeah, this is definitely more of a panic button combat type of a feature. Yeah. So overall, I do like this subclass. Uh, similar to what we saw with the sorcerer subclasses, uh, Tasha's has kind of strayed away from the previous subclass formula that they'd created by giving you something very early on and compounding on it throughout the entire subclass. You know, they they only get two features that uh, coincide with each other, the Tentacle of the Deeps and Guardian Coil. And I think that all of these features lend itself to a very nautical adventure and fit very well into themes of Oceania or piracy. My only reservation about this subclass is that in my experience, an underwater adventure or even a full-blown campaign uh, being moments of underwater or submersion or the high seas are very few and far between. And I think that before you choose this subclass, um, you would want to consult your DM or have a conversation about things that you would like to experience with the adventure or a campaign. Um, you know, if, if you know that this campaign is going to take place in the desert or an icy mountain range, you might not want to choose this subclass since a, a, a few of their features are directly related to being near water or being submerged in water. Yeah, I agree. However, you know, maybe maybe um, if you're up in the icy mountains, maybe there's a frozen lake nearby. That could count as water, right? Yeah, that that for sure could. And I think that, um, you know, I, I don't think it's too much uh, to ask when it comes to talking to your DM. I don't think it's too much to ask, hey, are we going to be near water? I'm thinking about playing the Fathomless, and I want to make sure that I can use... Um, these features that are offered in this book. And if not, I will probably choose something else. Um, I don't think that'd give too much away. I think I even did that with you when I talked about um, doing the the Storm King's Thunder. I said, I think I'm going to be a Triton and, you know, they're amphibious and he has resistance to cold damage. And you had said that, oh, well, you are going to the mountains. So that cold damage reduction could, you know, be of use. So even just something like that, it allowed me, the player, to say, okay, well, I'm making... Um, positive or useful choices when it comes to my character creation yeah absolutely that is definitely something to discuss with the dm um certainly in like a session zero for example and in future episodes at some point in the near future we'll be having a set uh, an episode where we just talk about how to run those session zeros and what's cover yeah i'm really really excited for that episode but unfortunately, that is not this episode, and I do still have one more subclass to talk about, and that is the genie. So if you've decided to create a warlock that has made a pact with a rare and powerful being that can fit inside of a shoebox, then you've made a pact with a genie. Genies delight in turning the tables on mortals and often use their power in both awesome and destructive ways to satiate their arrogant tendencies. Needless to say, you've never had a friend like these. <laughs> of course. I'm very glad you caught that. <laughs> of course. So when you choose this patron at first level, um, you can roll on the genie kind table, or you may choose one of the four types that are listed. Each genie type will affect the warlock's expanded spell list um, that is granted at first level. And you will also get resistance to different damages based off of 
what genie you've picked. Now, each of the genies are Dao, and that is earth, Jinni, and that is air, Ifriti is fire, and Marid is water. So at first level, um, much like the other warlock, you do get an expanded spell list, and these are additional spells that you do know and are always prepared. They do not count against the number of spells you know. And much like the previous, where you are gaining these uh, additional spells as your spells level up, I would also like to note that there are spells that are granted by having just the genie as your patron, and the other spell that is granted at that spell level depends on the genie type you have. Now, bear with me, I'm going to explain this semi-confusing table. I will go through and explain each level um, and what spells are offered. So at when you can cast at first level, the genie spell that you get is Detect Good and Evil. If you are a Tao or Earth genie, you get Sanctuary. Jinni, or the air, you get Thunder Wave. Ifriti, which is fire, you get Burning Hands. And Marid, which is water, you get Fog Cloud. When your spells are cast at second level, the genie spell is Phantasmal Force. Dao gets Spike Growth. Jinni gets Gust of Wind. Ifriti gets Scorching Ray. And Marid gets Blur. When you can cast at third level, the genie gets Create Food and Water. The Dao gets Melded to Stone. Jinni gets Wind Wall. Ifriti gets Fireball. And Marid gets Sleet Storm. When they can cast at fourth level, the genie allows you to cast Phantasmal Killer. At when you, the Dao can cast Stone Shape, Jinni, Greater Invisibility, Efriti is Fire Shield, and Murid is Control Water. At fifth level, the genie allows you to cast Creation. If you have the Dao genie, you get Wall of Stone. The Jinni is Seeming, Efriti is Flame Strike, and Murid is Cone of Cold. And additionally, at ninth level, you gain access to cast Wish, and that is given to you uh, by just having the genie as your patron. So I really like the idea that each genie type has its own unique spell list, along with having spells that are innately granted by making a pact with the genie. Something that I did notice about the lists, that they were all very obvious spells. Like, the Afriti one was just literally all offensive fire spells, except for the fire shield spell. I did think that the Ginny or the Air Genie spells were a little confused, if I'm being honest. Um, the only ones that were very Air to me were Gust of Wind and Wind Wall, um, the other ones being Thunder Wave, Greater Invisibility, and Seeming. I think that um, if there were more Air-related spells, that might solve you know the kind of distance that I'm having with it. But to do that, there would need to be more Air spells in existence. Um, I had thought. You know, what if there's a spell where you could take the air out of a 20-foot sphere? It's just like a vacuum where you just take all of the air out, where someone can't breathe and they need to get out of it, or they'll take, like, crushing damage or bludgeoning damage, some sort of, like, suffocation damage, something like that. But, you know, that's that's on wizards. They need to create more air spells. There needs to be an airbender class, and there needs to be more air spells. And that's what I say on that. <laughs> I, agree. I agree. I agree. So, the first level feature that you get is called Genie's Vessel. So your patron grants you a tiny sized vessel that grants you a measure of their power. You may use it as a spellcasting focus, and while you are holding this, you gain these benefits. Bottled Respite and Genie's Wrath. So Bottled Respite is, as an action, you may vanish into your vessel and remain there a number of hours up to double your proficiency bonus. 
The interior is a 20-foot radius cylinder room that is 20-foot high and appointed with low tables and cushions and is a comfortable temperature. You may leave the vessel early as a bonus action or if you die or the vessel is destroyed. Any objects in the vessel remain inside unless uh, carried out of it or the vessel is destroyed in which they appear in the closest five-foot proximity to the destroyed vessel. You may do this once per long rest and the vessel's AC equals your spell save DC and has HP equal to your warlock level plus your proficiency bonus and is immune to psychic and poison damage. The next feature is Genie's Wrath. Once on each of your turns, when you hit with an attack roll, you may deal an additional damage equal to your proficiency bonus. The damage type is determined by your Genie type. Bludgeoning for the Dao, Thunder for a Genie, Fire for Ifriti, or Cold for Marid. So I really like the idea of having a pocket-sized uh, studio apartment with paper-thin walls that you can go in once a day. Um, something I did forget to mention is while you are in the vessel, you can hear everything happening outside of the vessel as if you were outside. I'm surprised they didn't mention there's immunity to someone rubbing the vessel to force you outside of it. Yeah. Well, I mean... They're basically describing a, a genie's lamp. Yeah, basically you're getting a genie's lamp, but <laughs> you are not a genie yourself, so that's kind of cool that they can't force you out of it. Except by can't... like throwing it on the ground and stomping on it. Yeah. But I do think it's a very unique mechanic to consider, especially thinking about the utility that it offers in terms of not having to worry about a shelter for a party member, or potentially sneaking the warlock in someplace, um, or doing recon by placing your vessel in someone's room and listening to their conversation. They do give you a genie vessel table. Um, there are six options that they give, or you can you can talk with your DM and uh, pick one that is not on the list. They offer oil lamp, urn, ring with a compartment, a stoppered bottle, hollow statuette, or an ornate lantern. Or um, yes, so one of those six you're able to choose, or you can you know talk with your DM. What if it's an, an, like a locket or an amulet that is um, that is hollowed out, anything like that. And it looks like. It looks like only you can enter in this vessel? For now, yes. At first level, that is correct. Um, and it, I think it offers a really fun flavor for the warlock to be able to vanish into their vessel, kind of like an angry teenager just storming into their room. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going in my vessel. Goodbye. I've had enough of this. Yeah, I've, I've had enough of this party's bullshit. I'm going in the vessel, and I'm coming out <laughs> four hours later. Because at first level, you get, you know, it, you can go in there a number of hours equal to double your proficiency bonus. So at least four hours you are, you can be in your vessel. Um, and Genie's Wrath, which is the second part of this, I think is cool. Um, elemental damage boosts are fun and letting you add your patron's damage type to one attack roll per turn is pretty cool because this is just an attack roll. It's not the attack action. So this can be added onto Eldritch Blast or anything like that. That is a very safe way to take a short rest at that level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you are in a place that's a little unsafe, you could just bury your vessel or bury your hand holding your vessel and then just enter your vessel and four hours later come out. You don't even need to take a watch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so after first level, you do have to wait five more levels, but at sixth level, you do get a feature called Elemental Gift. So you now gain resistance to the damage type associated with your genie's type. Bludgeoning for Dao, Thunder for Ginny, Fire for Afriti, or Cold for Marid. And you can also give yourself a flying speed of 30 feet and the ability to hover for 10 minutes as a bonus action. 
and you may do this a number of times per long rest equal to your proficiency bonus. So again, with the elemental effects that are associated with your patron, you know, getting your expanded spell list, your genie's wrath, and now your resistance to damage type. I think it's not initially too exciting at 6th level to gain a damage resistance, kind of like what we saw with the last um, subclass, them getting cold, dis cold damage resistance. It's not too exciting, but it makes sense to me, which I like. So I'm glad that, you know, it's making sense. It's on theme. Um, but I think that gaining a flying speed of 30 feet is really cool as a bonus action. But honestly, I think that what might be cooler is with this feature is that like you lose your legs and it they become like a smoky tail, kind of like what we would imagine genies <laughs> to look like. So maybe that's the that's the trade-off is like you don't get your legs, but you do get a flying speed and you can hover. Um, flying is always nice, but I think, you know, just emulating their patron via their magic, um, that would just be a flavor that would make the feature just a little bit cooler to me. I mean, that's my only criticism. I just would like a ghostly tail. I mean, you can still do that. Yeah, absolutely. You can just say, yeah. But yeah, getting that getting that flying speed, uh, really thematic, really cool, and, and uh, very useful. Especially because most warlocks don't have the opportunity to fly, and if they do somehow get the fly spell, that's a, that's a spell slot, and I think at 6th level you still only have two of them. So that's half of your spells you can cast per short rest. Now you can just gain it as a bonus action without casting it or concentrating on it. Right, and without using up your action to do it. Yeah, being able to fly, move 30 feet, and then cast another spell. So at 10th level, the next feature that you get is called Sanctuary Vessel. So how I said before that for now, only one person can enter it and is the, the vessel holder or the, the warlock holding the vessel... When you enter your vessel with the bottled respite feature, you may also bring up to five willing creatures within a 30-foot radius with you into the vessel as well. You may eject a creature as a bonus action, and in addition, anyone that remains in the vessel for at least 10 minutes gains the benefit of a short rest, and anyone can add your proficiency bonus to the number of hit points that they regain when they do roll to regain hit points with their hit dice. So... I think that this feature is incredibly useful. And at level 10, your proficiency bonus is plus four. That means you can stay in the vessel for eight hours and anyone in your party can regain four additional hit points when they short rest for 10 minutes. I just, I think it's really awesome that this has both in and out of combat utility. Um, you could potentially take a downed teammate out of combat with you and heal them in your vessel. Um, or you could place your vessel in a safe place and give everyone a comfortable place to sleep for the night. You can stay in it eight hours. You don't have to do a watch. No, nothing like that. Yeah, there's so many really cool uses for that. And since it's um, most likely a pretty nondescript object, it's not going to be sticking out. It's going to be pretty easy to hide this thing if you need some sort of uh, privacy or camouflage or, or need to remain undetected. Um, unless you're in a campaign where you know, the bad guys are playing prop hunt and they're, they're actually trying to find a lamp that's not a lamp. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, if you are trying to do some espionage or anything like that, you could even have your entire party except the paladin get, you know, pulled into this necklace. You put the necklace around the neck of the paladin and now you're, now it's kind of like a surprise attack thing. I just think, it, yeah, there's so many cool uses for this. You could put your party into a ring and have 
somebody that's got a pretty high strength throw the ring across the wall to, you know, infiltrate the, the, the war camp or whatever, and then you guys all pop out of the ring. Oh, yeah. It's endless uses. I think it's so cool, um, and I'm glad that they compounded off of the first level feature that you get. You know, nine levels later, now you can bring everybody else into the lamp with you. Um, and providing a safe space and additional HP is so, so useful. I think that this feature is going to see so much play for people that, you know, want to take the genie as their patron. You know, I think the most used spell by the bard that's currently in my first of two games on Sunday, the spell that she uses the most is Liaman's Tiny Hut. Being able to provide a safe space and people can regain hit points and don't have to worry about um, any sort of, uh, like, watches. That It's just, it's so useful. Oh, yeah. Tiny Hut is an amazing spell. Yeah. So being able to mimic that in a, in a different sort of way is, is another being able to cast a spell without casting a spell. And I think that's really cool. Should note, as this is an extra-dimensional space, be careful about bringing in your bags of holding. Yes, absolutely. Be very careful about that. As that will not function <laughs> really the way that you want it to. Yes. So, rounding out this subclass, at level 14 you get your last feature, which is called Limited Wish. So you speak your desire to your patron into your vessel, requesting the effect of a 6th level spell or lower, and is one action to cast, and for that effect to be produced. The spell can be from any class's spell list and does not require any components. Once you use this feature, you may not use it again for 1d4 days. So this is a very interesting feature to get at level 14, especially since um, I'm pretty sure that any class that can cast Wish, they don't get access to the Wish spell until level 17. Um, the fact that you can cast a spell from any caster's spell list and no components are needed to cast the spell especially heavy cost components that's so strong and obviously we could speculate all day um this has infinite uses uh when it comes to what spells this can cast so i don't think we need to infinitely speculate wildly about what you could produce um with this feature but as an end cap feature i think it's on theme and it has a good balance of one being very powerful, but at the cost of potentially not being able to use this feature again for four whole days after that. Yeah, l let us know. Use your creativity. What what ways would you want to use this? What sort of situations would you want to use this six level or, or lower? Uh, automatic guaranteed get the effect of a spell. Um, you know, if, if there's a place to comment, let us know in, in a comment or... Uh, Hit us up on Facebook. What, what way would you want to use this? What scenario are you fantasizing about in order to use this limited wish? Yeah, what what spell has you have you always wanted to cast as a warlock and never been able to, and now you can? But all in all, I think that this subclass is more fun than anything else. I like that all the features are on theme for Genie and that they added a little bit of compounding features when it comes to the usage of your vessel and what all it can do. Um, I think that this is one of the more versatile and support-based warlocks that I've seen so far uh, during my, my time as a dungeon and dragoner. Um, a lot of warlocks are either very aggressive or can be seen as malicious with their features. Um, you know, much like the, the Fiend, when they get their 14th level feature, it's called Hurl Through Hell, and you can just 
essentially yeet someone through hell and they take 10d10 psychic damage reeling from their horrific experience. But this one is, you know, far more versatile and can be used in different ways and thinking about which type of genie that you want to produce the desired elemental effect. And this genie patron seems to be more focused on the utility of the vessel and granting spell versatility. Just like I said with the, the genie type, being able to have that versatility um, and differentiating between the genie types is really cool. And I think that this subclass might be a really good starting subclass. So if you are new to D&D or new to casters, I think that starting off um, this way or with this subclass would actually be a really, really smart choice. Um, it offers a good amount of thematic choices to make. And when I was looking at this, I, I realized that it really lets the player experience a lot of the game mechanics. You know, elemental damage, resistances, you gain flying, and you can uh, your your features are compounding and buffing each other and being able to pick from any spell list, you get to you you really get a full sense of game mechanics with this subclass. And I really like the theme of it as well. I, I like the idea of invoking a genie and gaining some of the uh, the themes and features that a genie would have as you level up and progress in this subclass, I think is really neat. Yeah, absolutely. I, overall, I would just say that this subclass was a success. I was never upset about anything or I didn't have a, any picadillo about what was going on in the subclass. I think it was just all around a really nice subclass. I, I, I agree with you there, 100%. Yeah. So what are wizards up to in Tasha's? I'm really excited to hear what's going on. Yeah, well, we've got a few things to talk about in Wizards. Um, we have two new optional class features and two new arcane traditions. So first up with the optional class features, Wizards have a much more expanded spell list. And we have covered everything on the new spell list. Almost all of them are in Tasha's. They've got quite a few of them. There are a couple that are in the player's handbook. Um, Wizards get access to all of the new summons, with the exception of Summon Beast, which is a druid and ranger exclusive, and Summon Celestial, which is a cleric and paladin exclusive. Um, so I'll just say that on these new spells that are in Tasha's, my favorite so far is still got to be that cantrip, that sword burst cantrip, uh, which to remind listeners is uh, that spell that you cast and uh, anything within a five foot radius has to make a deck save and on fail, they take 1d6 force damage. Um, I think adding this to the wizard's toolkit is incredibly useful. Wizards notably being a little bit more squishy and less able to defend themselves. Having that as a cantrip is incredibly useful. Um, those early level spells are going to be the ones you're casting a lot more often. And, and um, you know, especially like first and second level spells, you're much more willing to burn a spell slot for those rather than your big fifth level spell, which you probably only get to cast once and it might not hit. Um, so getting access to these much more powerful defensive um, spells for, for, uh, for wizards, especially, like I said, that cantrip of sword burst. Um, adding it to the, the Wizards Toolkit, I'm really excited about, and I'm glad I, I'm glad they're giving Wizards some more uh, defensive, in, a, in a, an aggressive sort of a way, uh, type of a spell. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm glad that they have, even in, in a sort of, kind of like a, a porcupine, it makes me think of, like, you get far too close, and now they can attack back and get everything with, that's within that five-foot radius. Mm, hey, back up for a second, I'm casting here. Yeah. 
Um, so continuing on with the second of the two new optional features, um, you might be thinking, well, of course, wizards get that same thing that we've talked about in literally every other spellcasting class where they can, you know, once whenever they hit a, a level that lets them change an ability score, they can get a new cantrip. And if you're thinking that, you would actually be wrong because wizards get something even better. This happens at third level. They get a thing called cantrip formulas where they have uh, inscribed this set of arcane formulas in their spellbook that lets them uh, use to formulate a cantrip. Uh, you can do this actually once per long rest. You can swap a wizard cantrip for another cantrip. Um, so this is kind of like, uh, it's a little bit of like what druids get to do, right? Where they can choose what spells they want at the end of a long rest. Um, wizards being able to swap a cantrip at the end of a long rest is going to be incredibly useful. Um, you know, it's nice instead of waiting until you level up to choose new spells or you, until you hit one of those key levels that, that, you know, gives you access to one more additional cantrip, um, which actually is, it, they're kind of spaced out a bit for, for that. So it's nice to not have to wait until that point to add another cantrip or, or change it out for another one. It's just once you hit third level, once per long rest, you can swap one of them for a different one. That is really nice. I like the ability to, like you said, druids and clerics um, are are unique in the sense that they can choose their spells every day. They can choose what is most useful to them. A lot of other casters, they don't get that option. They know the spells that they know, and that's it. So being able to swap out cantrips freely at the end of a long rest is so, so nice. Always very useful. Uh, so going back, you know, uh, if you're in a situation where um, you've picked certain cantrips and all of a sudden you know you're going to be coming up into some encounters, the, at the end of that long rest, you're like, okay, let's take Sword Burst for the next day because it's going to be really useful. Um, you can do that at third level. So I, I really like both of those. Uh, the new expanded spell list, a lot of great options, and the much more powerful third level cantrip formulas in the wizard class um, something I would encourage every DM to allow their wizards to do just because it's so good and so useful. So continuing on, like I said, we have two new arcane traditions. Those are the uh, subclasses for wizard, which you start at second level is where the, the paths start to branch off. And the first of these two is called blade singing. And this is a, a tradition that has its origins uh, with the elves. It's a, a tradition that involves this um, elegant performance, this elegant and beautiful performance of dance and swordplay that uh, involves these intricate maneuvers that allow you to channel your magic into these attacks and these cunning defenses. And at uh, second level, we have two features for this arcane tradition. The first one is called Training in War and Song. And this simply gives you proficiency with light armor and your choice of a uh, one-handed melee weapon. Um, you also get proficiency in performance. So thematically right on point, you know, being able to use weapons and light armor and, um, you know, it's the blade singing being uh, a tradition that involves these intricate dance maneuvers. You know, it makes sense that you're going to have proficiency and performance along with it. Um, so not a whole lot to really comment on that. The other one is sort of the, I would say the central focus of the class. Um, there are some things that kind of require it to be active at later stages in, in this arcane tradition. And this second level feature is called Blade Song. And this is uh, invoking that elven magic in, in the thing called the, the Blade Song. Um, this works as long as you don't have heavy armor or are not wearing a shield. As a bonus action, you start the Blade Song. It lasts for up to a minute. Um, it gives you the following benefits. 
um, while active, you can add your intelligence modifier to your AC and also to any concentration save. You get 10 feet of extra walking speed and you have advantage on acrobatics checks. Um, this blade song ends if you're ever incapacitated, if you ever put on medium or heavy armor or wearing a shield, or if you decide to go two-handed. So it has that requirement of, you know, you can only have, you know, no or, or light armor, um, can't wear a shield, and you got to have a one-handed weapon. Um, and you get to use this blade song a number of times per long rest equal to your proficiency bonus. So uh, I like that they're giving this, this specific arcane tradition a little bit more padding getting that bonus to AC, getting to uh, be a little bit more maneuverable on the battlefield with the extra walking speed, um, I think is going to be uh, pretty useful, especially for the class that is going to be more of a, a melee combat uh, type of a class. Yeah, I think one thing that's, I mean, it's all strong, but like gaining the bonus to your AC equal to your intelligence modifier is so strong because that's the the that's the biggest thing about wizards, isn't it? Is that they they don't get to wear armor. So now at least you get armor. You get the bonus to AC equal to your intelligence modifier, which is generally what you want to be maxing as a wizard. So your, your AC will potentially be pretty high. It's going to be pretty good for a wizard. You know, usually your AC uh, by default is, as a wizard, probably going to be something like... 11 or 12 if you're lucky and so being able to add the ac of wearing light armor as well as your intelligence modifier you know might be pushing that into like 15 16 maybe even 17 depending um and especially as you level up your ac getting stronger as long as you've got this blade song active um makes you a lot harder to hit as a wizard yeah which that's what you want as a wizard <laughs> right exactly um, so continuing on at sixth level, we have the feature, which is called extra attack. And it is literally what you think it is. You just get to attack twice. Uh, in addition, um, in place of one of those attacks, you can cast a cantrip, perhaps sword burst. Yeah, I, that's really nice. Um, a, it's like not too much to say about it other than just that's very useful and incredibly nice to have being able to attack twice. And one of them could be a cantrip if you wanted yeah, yeah, it's it's just useful. It's just nice. Mm -hmm. So continuing at 10th level, we have the Song of Defense. And uh, this is a feature that requires your Blade Song to be active, the Blade Song being that second level feature we talked about. And while it is active, you can, as a bonus action, um, burn a spell slot to reduce damage that you've taken uh, equal to five, t five times that spell slot's level. Um, so what that means, like at 10th level, um, the, the max spell slot that you have is a fifth level spell at 10th level. So right off the bat, immediately, this has a maximum damage reduction of 25 damage, which still is going to be pretty good. Um, I, I think it's the type of thing that's probably gives some flexibility to those higher level spell slots. Uh, right, so you, you don't have to save that one and only fifth level spell slot you've got for the exact right moment. It gives you some versatility to say, you know, rather than like waiting for the right opportunity, I can use that spell slot to reduce some damage that I take. Um, you know, instead of taking 25 points of damage, I'll just burn that fifth level spell slot that I'm probably not going to use right now and uh, make myself a little bit beefier. So, uh, a very good feature uh, at 10th level and. Um, you know, gets stronger as you level up since that damage reduction is based on the spell slot level that you burn. It's five times the spell slot level. 
So thinking ahead about that, it would cap out at 45 points of damage reduction if you burn a ninth level spell slot. Uh, hopefully you're not in a situation where you've got to use up that ninth level spell slot to reduce damage. You can use that to do something better, <laughs> but yeah. you know, that option is going to be there eventually. And then lastly, to cap this off at 14th level is the Song of Victory. And this one is a little bit unimpressive to me, but it is uh, another one that requires the Blade Song to be active. It allows you to add your intelligence modifier to melee weapon damage. That's it. Hmm. So I, I don't think that's a very impressive thing to aim for, to be looking forward to at 14th level. Um, I will say on this arcane tradition overall, I think it's interesting. You know, if you want to play a wizard that is more uh, aggressive, more melee based, that doesn't have to be as careful about taking damage or constantly playing from the back ranks. Um, however, I, I will say that if a melee spellcaster is what you're wanting to play, I'm not sure why you wouldn't just play sorcerer instead. Unless you are so hard set and your heart is definitely with wizards, um, and you can think of some really creative ways to incorporate the blade singing tradition, you know, in the way that you describe how you move about the battlefield or maybe the way that you cast spells. Um, I just think this tradition kind of feels out of place in the wizard class. It kind of feels like a mix of like fighter and sorcerer, but. Yeah, like this could have been, like how we saw with the Psy Warrior, um, this could be some sort of extension of that. Yeah, it's, you know, it's neat. I, I, I have heard of things like this in the realm of fiction, you know, so it's it's interesting to see it in the D&D world. Uh, I just, um, like I said, I, I feel like it's a little bit out of place in Wizard. Yeah. So. I'm, I'm not too sold on it being, you know, I, just a lot of Wizard things are very much like casting from the back lines and being up in their face. It, I'm not sure on the success of this. I would have to see some play or, or or people's creativity when it comes to playing this sort of wizard. Right. I imagine you're going to be doing a lot more melee attacks um, and then maybe using your cantrips to, you know, prevent damage or, or do some extra small damage or use them in a versatile way. I, I imagine this class is going to be doing a lot more melee attacks than spell casting. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure why you'd pick a spellcasting class and then a non-spellcasting subclass. Right. Uh, but I, enough, um, you know, bashing on this uh, arcane tradition. I am really excited about the second one. I think this is much more fitting for wizards and uh, much more interesting to me anyways. And this one's called the uh, Order of Scribes. And if you thought wizards were, you know, bookworms before, this one takes that to another level. And the, the whole thing about the Order of Scribes is their aim is to record and preserve these magical discoveries for other uh, spellcasters and for other wizards. And they are, they are such in tune with their spellbook that their spellbook um, has this, uh, this sentience, this awakened form to it. And so at second level, there are two features that, uh, that are immediate. You have Wizardly Quill. Um, this one, uh, what it does as a bonus action, you can create this tiny quill and it does the following things. It doesn't require ink. Um, you can write with any color that you want. And, um, the time to copy spells into your spell book, instead of it taking two hours, it takes, uh, two minutes per spell level. If you use the quill, um, I don't think that eliminates that 50 gold requirement to copy these spells in your spell book, but it, you know, drastically reduces the time it takes to copy them in. 
Um, and as a bonus action, you can erase anything written by the quill as long as you wave a feather over it and you're within five feet uh, of, of the thing you're trying to erase. You can only have one active quill at a time. So this magic quill doesn't really do anything, you know, functional. It does rec does reduce the spell time or the, the time it, it takes to copy spells into your book. I think this is going to be up to you as the player to come up with creative flavor things of what you can do with this quill until we get to some some later effects uh, with this particular arcane tradition. Um, but it's, you know, a cool thematic flavor uh, filled sort of a feature. You know, thinking about it, I think that might actually cover the GP requirement for spells because you are spending that GP on special ink and paper to copy them into your spell book. So this may even mitigate the GP requirements. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, the, the book wasn't entirely clear, um, so I, I'm not sure exactly which way to, to rule that. Um, so it's very it's very possible that it does eliminate that 50 gold requirement. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of flavor-filled uses for for the quill nonetheless. For um, sure. The second, the second thing that you get at level 2 with the Order of Scribes is uh, called the Awakened Spellbook. And it's, this is that thing where your spellbook has... Uh, awakened with this arcane sentience. And so the benefits of this, you can use the spellbook as a spellcasting focus, obviously. Um, you can temporarily replace the damage type of a spell that you're casting with another one that's in your spellbook, as long as it's of the, sp the same level. Uh, so hopefully that makes sense. You know, you, if you're casting a first level spell that has cold damage and you've got another first level spell that has fire damage, you can just replace that as long as you've got this awakened spellbook. Um, and then once per long rest, um, when you ritual cast a spell, uh, you can ritual cast it as the normal casting time instead of the normal casting time plus 10 minutes. So uh, I think this last feature is um, likely, you know, most likely useful for casting times of an action or bonus action. Not exactly useful if it's already got like a one hour casting time because um, reducing a one hour by 10 minutes is kind of negligible, but reducing a bonus action or an action by 10 minutes that could be incredibly useful if you're in a hurry to cast that thing and you don't have 10 minutes to spend on it. You're, you're like in a situation where, hey, we need to cast this right now. Um, otherwise, some bad stuff's going to happen. I can ritual cast it because that's all I got left. You know, maybe there's situations where that is, is going to come up. But And so lastly, the Tasha's does give you some rules for if you're ever in a situation where you need to replace the sentient spell book. Um, how to do that, and then what happens to the old one if you ever make a new one. So it gives you some, some rules for what happens in that situation. Um, so continuing on, um, we have the level 6 feature called Manifest Mind. And this sort of builds on that Awakened Spellbook that you have at second level. As a bonus action, you can conjure forth the mind of your spellbook. The mind of your spellbook manifests as a tiny spectral object within 60 feet of you. It emanates 10 feet of radi uh, 10 foot radius of dim light. Um, it'll, it'll appear as, uh, in, in tiny size, a ghostly tome, um, a cascade of text, or a scholar from the past of your choice. Um, while this mind has manifested, it has uh, the following three benefits. It can he hear, uh, hear and see. It's got a dark vision out to 60 feet. And um, requiring no action can telepathically share any of that information with you. Um, a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus per long rest, you can cast from that mind's space instead of yours. And also as a bonus action, you can move it 30 feet 
um, to a place that you can see, um, to a place that you or it can see. It can also pass through creatures, but not objects. So bonus action, move it 30 feet from uh, within where you are or where, where the mind is. Um, the manifest mind ends if it's ever 300 feet away from you, or if someone casts dispel magic on it, or if you die, or if the awakened spellbook is destroyed, or if you dismiss it as a bonus action. Um, and lastly, you get to do this, you get to manifest mind once per long rest, unless you burn any level of spell slot to do it again. So, whew, all that to say, uh, I think this has a lot of really practical uses, um, being able to produce this spectral mind that you can cast from um, that'll produce some dim light it can do some recon and share some information with you it's got dark vision out to 60 feet um, you can bonus action move it 30 feet and it can pass through things well, it can pass through creatures um, all, all this is is incredibly useful and there's just so many options so many ways to use it in a, in a you know in and outside of combat even yeah and i mean in combat i think that being able to cast your spells from another point not having to get directly in the line of someone using your awakened spellbook as a conduit or this um sorry this manifested mind as a conduit for your spells is tactically very interesting as well yeah absolutely um you know and like i said being able to do some recon see and hear from it it's a it's tiny size it's gonna be pretty hard for uh, something to detect it it could go and, you know, go peek around the corner and let you guys know what is in the dungeon around the corner before you go bursting into it. Um, it's just going to be uh, really useful. So, uh, moving on at level 10, we have the feature called Master Scrivener. And this one is all about creating spell scrolls. So, at the start of your long rest, you can use that magic tiny quill that you created, that wizardly quill feature that you got at second level. You can use that quill at the start of a long rest to create a scroll from any spell that's in your spell book. The spell's got to be first or second level and have a casting time of one action. And um, the trade-off, however, is the spell in that scroll, from the, spell, from the scroll form, casts at one level higher. Uh, you cast it simply by using an action to read it. Um, the spell is unintelligible to anyone else, however, so only you can read it and cast it. And that scroll is going to be, uh, it's gonna, uh, just going to go away. It's going to disappear after you read it or finish a long rest. So you can just have one spell scroll active at a time. There's no, um, let's spend the next week so I can build up a stockpile of these scrolls that cast at a level higher. Um, additionally, with this Master Scrivener feature, you are adept at crafting spell scrolls as outlined in the Dungeon Master's Guide. There's a whole set of rules on how that works. Um, but the, the benefit to being, quote, adept at it is the time and gold that you need to make those is halved if, if you use that magic quill. So uh, my thoughts on this one, I think it's a pretty good trade-off to be able to cast these first and second level spells at one level higher um, without, you know, having to burn up a spell slot. You just you know, at the start of your long rest, if you know the situation you're going into, you prepare one and um, you just have it at your disposal without burning a spell slot and it casts at a level higher. That's really nice, um, especially if you have back pocket spells that you know that generally you like to cast or would keep around to keep casting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, maybe you, you know, um, use it to make a beefy magic missile that you've got in your back pocket and just have some guaranteed damage just simply by reading the spell scroll. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's some pretty amazing wizard spells that are second level, like, you know, Phantasmal Force, Invisibility, um, Mirror Image. Some of these things, being able to cast at higher levels, you can uh, target more than just yourself or target more than just uh, two other people. Yeah, absolutely. So, And, and it continues with this theme of sort of being the the bookworm type of a wizard where, you know, I imagine at the start of your day, you're reading through your wizard spell book and maybe taking some notes. And while you're doing that, you're making some spell scrolls. I like that this is kind of multifaceted and there are a couple different things going on where you're able to craft spell scrolls and you're also be able to prepare spells. It's um, this. Yeah, I'm I'm loving the whole bookworm aspect to this. Yeah, definitely. And so... Lastly, to wrap this up with this um, arcane tradition, I think this level 14 feature is much more impressive than the previous one. This one's called One with the Word. And while your awakened spellbook is on your person, you have advantage on arcana checks. Not very impressive. But the thing that I like is while that manifested mind, while you have that uh, manifested mind out and you take damage, as a reaction, you can dismiss the mind to prevent all damage from that source. Um, it's just a single single source. I'm just trying to clarify. The way that I wrote my notes is kind of odd, but it's whenever you take damage, you can dismiss the mind and prevent that damage. You can prevent all of that damage. Um, the spellbook then temporarily loses spells with a combined level total of 3d6. Um, so you roll 3d6 if it's 18, for example, the maximum that could be you have to have spells where their levels combined total 18 the spellbook temporarily loses that number um, if there's not enough to cover that then you just drop to zero hit points um, however assuming that you succeeded there is enough spell combined spell levels total hopefully that's making sense um, they disappear temporarily then they reappear after 1d6 long rests and you can use this reaction once per long rest so I think this is a really cool feature that's, it's not one that you're going to use all the time, but it's more of a, a panic button. Let's try to not die as a wizard. Uh, I accidentally just got hit by a ton of damage and I'm going to dismiss the manifest mind and prevent all of it and hopefully have enough spells left in my book uh, to cover it. Yeah, and then, God, not being able to cast some of those lost spells for 1d6 days. Oh my God. Yeah, it's going to be a bit rough, but this is sort of a emergency panic button. I would have died, but now I'm not dead. And uh, just to clarify, that's not remaining spell slots. It's just spells in your book. So even if you're out of spell slots, you've got the manifest mind out. You can just dismiss it and prevent that damage. Um, you might lose those spells for a few days, but maybe that's your only option left. And this is a really good panic button. If you take damage, yeah. I mean, that could be that could be somebody's disintegration ray, just gone, yep. no damage. Yep, as long as you've got these spells in your book to cover it. So um, I'm I'm thinking that if you're approaching level 14 or you're hitting level 14, you've got this feature now. You're probably picking spells that is going to cover a lot of situations. You know, um, I don't think you're going to hit level 14 and go, well, I got all these spell slots. Let's pick all level level one spells. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're going to have some in there that are higher level and um, hopefully, you know, have enough uh, 
to at least cover 18 points worth of uh, combined level total, you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess my overall thoughts on this particular arcane tradition, um, this one to me definitely feels more like a wizard subclass and I'm, I'm excited to try it out. Um, the manifest mind acts like a much more powerful familiar um, in that all the things that it can do, it can do some recon, it has 60 feet of dark vision, um, it can telepathically communicate with you and uh, not to mention all the other things that it lets you do in these later features um, and being able to cast from it is, uh, you know, a familiar but much more powerful. And I also really like the uh, the role-playing potential. I'm thinking of my mind of just uh, a wizard that's constantly talking to their spellbook and no one else can hear it, I think is really amusing to me. Um, the Master Scrivener feature, that sixth, uh, sorry, that 10th level feature that lets you um, make these neat spell scrolls, um, I think is really cool. It gives some beef to some of your weaker spells without having to burn a spell slot. Um, I, I think it would have been a little bit better if it wasn't capped at second level, but I still think it's a really good feature. Um, and like I said, lastly, that one with the word feature, that 14th level feature, it's a really, really nice and really powerful emergency button, um, giving you that extra getaway, you know, in the end game. You're probably using that in some of the much more dangerous, maybe even end of campaign battles where you need to um, really make sure that you're not dead. Yeah. This... <laughs> You know, while you're reading all these features and everything, and you're talking about this being bookworms, and then you see Awakened Mind, this is just giving me mad Macaulay Culkin, the page master vibes. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I mean, you you really are forming a bond with this book, and this book is kind of this awakened mind, and you are forming this relationship, and it's, it's almost like a highly intelligent familiar that you know it can't attack and can't do some of these things but it really protects you and you it and you draw so much power from this like spectral manifested mind i think you know i i agree i don't want to harp on the the blade singer but i think that this really feels like a, a wizard thing yeah 100 percent. i'm much more excited to try out um this one the order of scribes than i am of the blade singing one they're both neat. I'm just way more excited about the scribes. For sure, for sure. If you've been listening to our shows at all, you'd know about me. I am very much more about the RP than I am about rolling the dice and seeing what my maximum damage is, you know? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I, don't get me wrong. I love the RP, but something feels just so right about building a race class and you just... You roll the dice and your spell does max damage and you feel so good about it, but I'm getting there. I'm, I'm definitely getting there. Yeah, perhaps. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll come a little bit the other way as well. Yeah, we, we, could, we could both benefit from stepping into each other's lives and shoes and seeing how the other side lives. Totally, totally. Well, uh, all right, that is our show for this week. Thank you all for stopping by. Um, if you like this episode, please check out uh, our future episodes, which are released every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Central. Um, next week, we are going to continue our journey through Tasha's Cauldron of Everything as we discuss the brand new class introduced in the Eberron setting in which Tasha's has expanded on called the Artificer. This has been Discussions in Dragons. I'm Jaren. And I'm Britton. And we'll see you next time.